Dark Rift Radio. Warning, the following program is solely intended for a mature audience. Any of the idiotic opinions and views expressed on this show are solely opinions of Dark Cringe Radio and not of its advertising, which is completely pointless because this poorly produced dumbass podcast has no advertisers. Furthermore, any rebroadcast or redistribution of Dark Friend Radio podcast without the permission is strictly prohibited. If you do, we will find you. Then we will send three black-eyed children to your home or office to collect your soul. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Dark French Radio, everyone. I'm your host, Will Martinez, here with you tonight. Thanks for joining in. I appreciate it very much. This is our very first episode of the podcast. It's very special to me and my dear little heart. Man, what a loss. Chris Cornell, we're going to miss the hell out of you, man. What a tragic loss. Man, what happened there? Uh-uh. Do you realize there's only one frontman left from the grunge era? Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam is the last one left. No one left after him. That's some crazy stuff. Anyways, tonight we have a lot of stuff to talk about in our inaugural very first episode of Dark Fringe Radio. We got ISIS, UFOs. Some crazy CCTV footage of people falling down these steps that are haunted as fuck. Also, a little bit later on, plus some entertainment news. And a movie review for you as well. So, again, thanks everyone for joining in at the Dark Fringe Radio. And uh, it's our very first episode, like I said here uh, with you guys tonight and um, wanted to give you a little bit of an intro about what our particular uh, podcast is going to be about and the subject matter. And it's pretty much an, um, an alternative theory and view and way of thinking uh, to any and all subject matter. What I mean by that is this. Um, I like to talk about the paranormal, uh, ufology, um, politics, uh, religion, uh, you name it. Anything is uh, not off base when it comes to the uh, subject of topic here at Dark Ridge Radio. But I like to give an alternative side to it. I don't like to go by the mainstream side. Um, I believe that the uh, mainstream news, unfortunately, is uh, run by uh, propaganda and also uh, big advertisers, uh, mainly drug companies, uh, that pretty much uh, you know pull the strings uh, of um, you know what goes on and what doesn't go on in the media. So, you know, this is uh, something different to that and uh, an alternative. Um, opinion and alternative choice and viewpoint uh, to all these things. So um, I just hope to you know bring this to you and, and be entertaining for you guys in the process and um, able to maybe laugh a little bit, but also take in some information and really think about it and uh, open up some eyes and some minds and some hearts maybe at the same time. So enough of that bullshit, but uh, I wanted also to uh, give you some information regarding our social media. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter, which is our most active um our most active social media account at Dark Fringe Radio. You can catch us there. Also, um, our website 
is darkfridgeradio.wordpress.com. Uh, you can catch a lot of our uh, show content on, on there as well. And um, the way to catch our show is on SoundCloud and iTunes. SoundCloud, Cloud, um, Dark Fringe Radio on there, and also the same on um, iTunes as well. And uh, when you also get onto iTunes and catch our show, make sure you uh, rate and subscribe. And uh, try to give us a great rating on there and give us some feedback on the show. Uh, maybe some content that you might, you might want to listen to or um, suggest to me. Also, maybe some um, guests that you might want to listen to on the show. Uh, anything that uh, you may think that might be of interest to me. So please send that my way. I'll be more than happy to entertain any and all ideas. Uh, we're going to try to drop an episode for you guys every Wednesday night. Again, on those two um, avenues and SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, you can email me anytime as well. The email address is thedarkfringe at uh, gmail.com. You can catch me there. And um, tonight we're going to be speaking about some regular news um, that's kind of alternative thinking. Also, some entertainment news uh, kind of centered around the paranormal. And also we're going to be talking about a story about a lawyer by the name of Andrew Mishago and how uh, his life uh, pretty much has to deal with DARPA and also some time travel. So very interesting story there tonight. So make sure you stick around for that. Going to get into some pretty deep uh, conversation when it comes to that uh, that story. So again, uh, catch us every Wednesday night on SoundCloud and iTunes, Dark Fringe Radio, and I hope you guys enjoy the show. And now for your listening pleasure, I present to you Dark Fringe. We're going to jump right into the headlines. Um, children say they are too scared to play soccer after they spot a goblin at the side of their field. Um, it looks like a strange, strange animal-like creature that the children think is a supernatural being can be seen in the footage uh, before they uh, scream and run away. Now, um, we've seen videos of things like this in the past and um, of, um, you know, just, you know, home videos of um, animal-like creatures or cryptid type doing stuff like this in the past but in this particular video you can see uh, the children are heard screaming uh, running away as the um, animal-like creature comes into the frame um, it's a pretty uh, compelling video it could be pretty much anything I'm not sure exactly what it is um, the, veiny, uh, the the video looks a little grainy so it's really hard to tell you know what's going on um, in this particular uh, video but the bizarre animal-like creature was spotted on the video and it can be seen creeping towards the youngsters um, as they were playing. Uh, the boys are now too scared to play on their makeshift uh, little field that they've made after the encounter with the odd beast. Um, they run off towards their homes in uh, Don Bosco, the third neighborhood in the uh, city of Santiago El Estrero in northern Argentina, uh, where they vowed not to return. 
I'm going to be posting this video up on our up on our page, and you can see the video for yourself, along with a lot of the other stuff that we're going to be posting on uh, here for today. But it's a pretty cool-looking video. I don't know what it is. Uh, it's too grainy. The video is too poor quality, um, and you just really can't make out what it is. But it looks like it could be a monkey, um, but I'm not sure what it is. But pretty interesting stuff. Our next headline we're going to jump right into is Stairway to Hell. Uh, there's um, some creepy CCTV footage um, that appears to show people thrown down haunted steps by ghost. Uh, now, this was uh, reported by the Daily um, Mail uh, in the UK, but um, as we'll post up on, on our site, creepy CCTV footage showing people mysteriously tumble down a set of steps has split opinion and amid reports that the stairs are haunted by poltergeist. Several incidents have been reported, and the clip shows a number of people seemingly incapable of coming down the staircase in the town of Kinangao, Malaysia, without tumbling to the ground. Uh, the property is rumored to be haunted by poltergeists, according to local reports. Uh, the video was posted to a social media account where it quickly be, uh, gathered thousands of people online and quick to say the victims have been um, pushed by a ghostly force. The footage was uploaded by uh, Mahat Fazil, who said it was shot in a town of Kinangao in the Sabah state of Malaysia. Uh, some commentators uh, pointed out the stairs were placed too widely apart, causing people to lose their balance. Others claimed that it looked like if some of the people who uh, come from a bar had been drinking. Uh, but other commentators insisted, insisted that it looks like as if the stairs were haunted and advised an exorcist was the best way to make the stairs safer uh, rather than bothering to rebuild them. Uh, there was no official comment from the owner of the property about the claims that he had had a poltergeist. A ghost is capable of making its presence felt on the physical plane. So um, I've done some work in my 9-to-5 job where we actually investigate stairs in a weird way. Um, I've done appraisals for uh, properties and there's actually a real science behind making stairs. It can't be too deep and the, um, the steps itself can't be too, um, too narrow. Um, because what happens is, is that a person's, uh, will lose their actual balance if it, they go too far low, uh, to a certain point. Um, so there is a science about, uh, you know, making stairs properly. And uh, I wonder if that has something to do with it here. I mean, it may look like it, but um, we're going to go ahead and post that on our website as well. So you can take a look and make a judgment for yourself. All right. This next uh, topic comes right up Peru. Uh, possessed blue eyed doll wanders around the house at night and scratches children as they sleep. A family has claimed a possessed blue-eyed doll wanders their house at night and scratches their children while they're asleep. Uh, the Nunez family say creepy blonde doll Sarita is causing paranormal activities to occur and is awakening the spirit of a family member who killed herself years ago. Uh, the family who live in El Callao, uh, Peru, said that they've seen uh, strange lights and hear weird noises in the house and bizarre scratches appear on their kids. Uh, the strange um, happenings are started seven years ago when the nephew of the mom, Yvonne, uh, gave her the blonde blue-eyed doll, dubbed the Peruvian Annabelle. Uh, Yvonne said that her three children claimed that during the night, uh, they leave the doll in the corner of the room, but in the morning, she has moved to the table or can be seen sitting on top of the furniture. So uh, when pushed, uh, they claimed that uh, the doll makes a sound as if she was praying. And one of the children, Stephen, uh, 18 years old, said that he usually wakes up with bruises and scratches for unknown reasons. Uh, his sister, Angie, at the age of 20, uh, claims that she often hears strange noises in the middle of the night, like knocking on the door or the wardrobe three times, but there is no one there. 
Uh, Every night I feel as though if somebody is looking at me from the corner of the room, she says. Uh, The family decided to ask a medium to investigate the case and contacted an angel expert, Soraya de los Angeles, uh, who visited their house. Uh, She cleansed the home and dozens of strange lights uh, uh, like circles appeared as she did so. Soraya also walked around the house during the ritual and claimed to have detached the presence of a mysterious woman in one of the rooms. According to Yvonne, uh, that is the sister-in-law who killed herself in that exact spot. Uh, The angel expert also says that she felt an evil presence inside that doll that wants to hurt the family. Uh, She did a cleansing ritual in order to protect the house and uh, to make the spirits leave and left seven candles in the living room. So um, that's... um, a pretty common thing you hear about in the uh, Latin American culture. Um, dolls are used a lot in Santeria. Uh, they're used as um, beacons. And um, usually it's for good. Um, but there are some that are used for bad. Just like in anything else. You have white magic. You have black magic. Um, and in this case, um, this uh, particular doll may have been um, just an attachment by the person who gave the actual item uh, to the family. So and if, if that person had some type of you know energy attachment to that item and then later on killed themselves, um, I can see how uh, that particular person's energy may be uh, inside that doll. So very creepy uh, and uh, very mysterious thing, things going on in Peru. All right, next on the list, it's a UFO researcher found dead days after texting, if anything happens to me, investigate. A uh, British researcher and conspiracy theorist who was visiting Poland to give a talk about his research into the UFO uh, phenomenon was found dead on a sofa just days after sending a fearful text to his mother. Uh, Max Spires, age 39, was starting to make a name for himself in the realm of alternative research, uh, specifically into the topics of UFO and government cover-ups. Uh, like many researchers in this field, he began to seem worried that his line of work was making him a target to those that don't want specific information known. In this uh, chilling text to his mother, Vanessa Bates, days before his death, Spires wrote, Your boy's in trouble. If anything happens to me, investigate. Uh, Max's body was found just days after, uh, days later, excuse me, in Warsaw, Poland, and uh, was ruled to have had died for natural causes, uh, even though at the time no postmortem uh, examination had been done on his body. Now Vanessa strongly believes that it was her son's investigations into the aforementioned topics uh, that had made him a target and those uh, who would rather have this information kept secret, therefore becoming enemies to Max, enemies who may have well have wanted him dead. Uh, she was quoted as saying, "Is he was staying with a woman who had he had not known for very long, and she told me how she had found him dead on the sofa. But I think Max had been digging in some dark places, and I fear that somebody wanted him dead." And just a little bit about uh, more about Max Byers. Max was uh, from Canterbury, England, and had, man- had managed to uh, make a career out of his research and investigating unexplained UFO sightings and alleged government cover-ups. Uh, he had recently began dwelling in the lives of uh, well-known figures in politics and business and entertainment. He had uh, started a blog called Where the Truth Meets the Heart. Here is where he posted his thoughts and ideas and research. A quote from Max on his blog says, I'm very excited to begin this journey, and I will be blogging my journey and findings in a way that I've never done before. It's time to disintegrate the thinning veil for good, and I hope this blog will be a tool to do so. It's quoted on saying, we can't be stopped now. I'm going to go into considerably more detail than I ever would or could on Facebook. He also said, my personal belief that everything is 
that is going on outside of myself is an immaculate reflection of what's going on inside myself. Quoted as saying is, this has allowed me to find answers to questions in the immediate world around me. The entertainment industry is too full of ego traps and smoke and mirrors to give my me any direct information. In regards to his unwavering belief in extraterrestrial life, he said, we are all receiving kinds of all kinds of help from masters, ETs and extra dimensional type angelic beings and learning very quickly to go inward. The more we're able to go in and listen to that still quiet voice within us, the more we'll be in tune with the changes that are occurring around us and ultimately free us from the ultimate form of control. Uh, because his unexpected death and the way it was handled, many of Max's online followers were absolutely convinced that he was assassinated by the government agents. While this is speculative at the time, this wouldn't be the first time people believed that the shadow government was responsible for freak accidents, unexpected or natural type causes. Uh, for people who spent their lives trying to expose the truth about various controversial topics. On a website called Project Camelot, a blogger wrote, The entire circumstances are suspicious, and I urge everyone to encourage the release of details about what really happened and call for an op autopsy. And another Craig Hewlett added, if it, wasn't for, if it wasn't true what he talks about, then why would they kill him? Healthy people just don't get sick and die. They get poisoned. All of this information is what led to Max's mother start to believing these theories as well. She added, Max was a very fit man who was in good health, and yet he apparently just died on a sofa. Apparently, he had not suffered any obvious physical injuries, and but he could have been slowly poisoned, which is why the results of the toxicology test from his postmortem were so important. According to Yahoo News, a postmortem examination was carried out by pathologists in East Kent, but Vanessa says that there's more than two months later that she still does not know the result or whether there will be an inquest. The Northeast Kent coroner's office would only confirm the death as was very early stages of investigation. So this is a very um, interesting topic to me because um, as a person who loves conspiracy theories and um, loves alternate theories, you know, this could be very concerning at times because you don't know what rock you're going to uncover and open Pandora's box for yourself. And I think in this particular case, Max did that in his in his life. Um, I don't know what it was that he uncovered, but it was something that was obviously very important uh, to some people. Uh, so important that it was, um, you know, it basically cost Max's life. I um, I applaud people like this, people who actually take initiative to, you know, try to uncover these things. Um, unfortunately, you know, these people are not um, not talked about in the mainstream news. You would never hear about this on anything else um, but an outlet like this and others like mine. Um, but, you know, again, if you are a researcher and um, you are uncovering some truths that may be pointed to some very powerful and governmental type individuals, I would suggest that, you know, you kind of keep it to yourself for the time being until you have a platform to release the information uh, without any prior notice or warning. And I think that was the problem with this particular case was that he kind of gave a little bit of a heads up about what he was going to be uncovering. And um, I think that may have been the uh, the nail in the coffin for, unfortunately, and I hate to use that pun, uh, but for Max. So very horrible story. And I feel horrible for his, uh, you know, his family and his mother. And um, I hope they're able to uh, find the answers they're looking for. 
Well, on a lighter note, ISIS Twitter account has been hacked by Anonymous and filled with gay porn. Now, when I saw this article, nothing but joy just came over my heart and uh, and laughter because um, when I saw this, I, I you can actually see uh, pictures of the actual site, what they did to it, and they put a big, uh, you know, gay pride flag on the uh, on the header and on the um, the icon, the profile picture. It's, it says, "I'm gay and I'm proud," and it's great. So basically, a hacker who took over the social media accounts of various pro-ISIS groups has repeated his outrageous attack. Uh, Wachula Ghost, a hacker who is associated with Anonymous, hacked into the Twitter account of the violently homophobic group almost a year after his first break-in. In 2006, he targeted the group following the murder of 49 men and women in the Pulse nightclub massacre, uh, which happened here in Orlando, Florida. Uh, the hacks may seem remarkable to the Wachula Ghost insist that ISIS social media is surprisingly easy to get into. In fact, it only took them less than one minute to fill their Twitter with gay porn. The online arsonist has received death threats and has been has been sent videos of beheadings since last year, but insists the abuse of threats haven't put him off. He says that he's begun targeting pro-ISIS accounts because someone needed to stand up for, uh, to the extremist group. And the man said that his latest attempts, we started uh, to take over their accounts with porn and gay pride images, basically to troll them. We thought that putting the naked images would offend them, as well as rainbow flags and pro-LGBT plus messages. The hacker also linked accounts to porn sites. He told CNN after the first hacking, I get beheading images, death threats, and uh, we're going to kill you. And that's good because if they're focusing on me, they're not doing anything to anyone else. He started to take over their accounts with porn and gay pride images, basically just to troll them. And we thought that putting the um, images of naked people would offend them. If the social media people like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram would stand up and do something, it would help. Sometimes you have to stand up and make a change for the good. Going on, he says that ISIS supporters generally don't have a very strong computer literacy and that it takes around 60 seconds for them to hack each account. Daesh, ISIS, have been spreading and praising the attack so... I thought I would defend those that were lost. The taking of the innocent lives would not be tolerated, he said. One thing I want to do and say is that we aren't going to use graphic porn and our purpose is not to offend Muslims. Our actions are directed to the jihadist extremists. Many of our own group hackers are Muslim and we respect all religions and we do not take innocent lives. Messages posted to the compromise accounts include I'm gay and I'm proud and out and proud. However, the hacker says that his efforts are not aimed at the Muslim population as a whole, as a whole, um, only the few hijadist extremists that operate on the site. I did it for the lives of Orlando, and ISIS has been spreading and praising the attack, so I thought I would defend those that were lost. The taking of innocent lives will not be tolerated. Now, this is um, Anonymous, and um, Anonymous, Anonymous has been a very, very vocal group as of late within the last couple of years. Um, they've been making a lot of headway when it comes to groups like this and the KKK and whoever they focus their, their attention to. And they're very, very uh, effective in their methods and uh, uh, capabilities of um, you know, getting into these sites and hacking and, and able to you know, release information that you know others don't have the balls to do. So I applaud uh, Anonymous for their efforts. I applaud uh, them uh, being the shadow elite in some way to watch over the un uh, the unjust and uh, to try to do something about it. But uh, this is just another example of how you know a group of people uh, with uh, that are intelligent that get together. Uh, what kind of power they can do or bring and um, the things that they can do is just unbelievable. And uh, I definitely applaud them. So 
big ups to Anonymous. So our next uh, topic and um, one of our focuses for tonight, um, some people are saying that some spooky things are happening at the uh, serial killer's uh, Ted Bundy's childhood home in Tacoma, Washington. Um, it looks like unexplainable things have happened in the uh, Tacoma house where serial killer Ted Bundy grew up. So many things, in fact, that a contractor had had been hired to remodel the home, uh, penciled Bible scriptures on the wall, and brought in two pastors to bless the house. He was quoted on saying, "Is I'm not the one to believe in a lot of this stuff, but this house made me a believer, said uh, Casey Clopton, the contract. A cry for help appeared on a window as crew members worked in the basement. Heavy furniture wedged into a wall toppled over. Doors and cabinets seemed to open themselves. It all started in September when David Trong bought the 1,400-square-foot home with plans to redo it and flip it. He didn't research its history, so he didn't know the local lore or who had lived there. The Little Blue House was built in 1946, the same year Bundy was born in Vermont. Uh, the Bundy family moved into the house uh, in about 1955, records show, and Louise Bundy was no longer living there in 1989 when her 42-year-old son was executed in Florida after being convicted in the killing of two sorority sisters and a 14-year-old girl. Investigators linked him to at least 30 slayings, though they believed there were dozens more. His killing spree started in 1974 in Washington and continued for years across 11 states. Uh, Bundy was nine when his family moved into the four-bedroom home, and uh, neighbors can recall him having a bedroom on the ground floor though at least one of the records indicate his room was at the foot of the stairs in the basement. He had lived there with his mother, stepfather, and four siblings. I don't remember seeing Ted, said Hope Murray, a neighbor who grew up a few houses down and later bought her childhood home. She recalls playing with Bundy's younger sisters and Louise Bundy babysitting her once. She said that she once went to their home and she was told to stay out of Ted's bedroom because he had the measles. They were a really nice family, Murray said. Bundy insisted that he grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents. Uh, Louise Bundy was a staunch defender of her eldest son and long insisted that he was innocent. Her stance softened as he made several death row confessions. In his final interview with a psychologist just before he was executed, Bundy said that his family regularly attended church and believed that his violence stemmed from an obsession with pornography that fueled dark fantasies. Some believe that Bundy started killing when he was at the age of 14 and that Anne Marie Burr, an eight-year-old girl abducted from her home in North End in August of 1961, was his first victim. Bundy denied it in a letter to the girl's mother written after he was imprisoned in Florida as he was named a suspect in Anne Marie's disappearance. Louise Bundy said back then that she wasn't sure he did commit any crimes while living under her roof and DNA testing done in 2011 was unable to link Bundy to the missing girl. He is, however, still listed as a suspect in the case because detectives could not clear him. Despite Bundy's being one of the most notorious serial killers, there is no evidence that he committed any crimes in his childhood home. That doesn't stop some neighbors and now the contractors from believing that there's something spooky about that house. Clopton, the contractor, first visited the house after he was hired in October. He took along his 11-year-old daughter, who sometimes go with, goes with him, and takes dedicated notes from her dad about the work that needs to be done. My daughter started crying, Copton said. She said she felt weird. She didn't like it there. She refused to be alone in the house and was so uncomfortable they quickly left. Clopton returned the next week with a demolition crew. One crew member echoed the sentiment that the house didn't feel right. Then things started to happen. Clopton kept dismissing it as pranks among the crew. There was a time where they re-entered the house, which they had been locked, and every door and every cabinet drawer was open. 
or the time when the workers were cleaning up the flooded basement and spotted the words, help me, written on the glass. A screwed-on screen protector would have made it difficult for someone to write outside of it. A heavy-set dresser inset in the upstairs hallway wall somehow pulled itself out and landed face down on the floor while the crew was downstairs. Workers said it takes at least one strong man to pull it out, and there was no way that it could have fallen on its own. Periodically, throughout the course of the job, we had weird things kept happening, Clopton said. Cell phones and other electronics occasionally would get unplugged and immediately die. The word leave was found written in the sheetrock dust on the bedroom floor with no footprints around it. Clopton eventually chattered with some of the neighbors about the odd occurrences, asking if there had been a rash of neighborhood break-ins. That's when he learned that Bundy once lived in the home. Clopton passed the information along to Trong and James Pitts III, the real estate broker. Pitts said that he was shocked but excited by the discovery because he had an interest in true crime. It was really eerie, but really neat, he said. We made sure to keep quiet initially because we weren't sure how people would react to knowing a serial killer had lived there. Although a handful of potential buyers asked Pitts about Bundy's once calling the house home, he said the people who recently bought the house did not. It is unclear whether the new owners are aware. They are unable to be reached for comment. After uh, Clopton found out about the house's connection to the serial killer, he decided it was time to seek help. So he called uh, Puglia Loop pastor and asked him to bless the house two pastors came out and went from the room to room reading scriptures and saying blessings uh, they encouraged the crew to continue playing christian music while they worked and they also suggested writing bible verses on the walls which the workers did the penciled writing can no longer be seen beneath the fresh paint but clopton hopes that they will continue to offer protection everything in that house fought us and i was kind of weird about it he said but i go to church and i have god with me the house was completely redone with new paint and a bright yellow front door and renovated floors and ceilings, but the history still remains. So, you know, again, we have a, uh, you know, a person who grew up in this house and over time had this very dark energy about him. And obviously it manifested itself in a way where, you know, it forced this man to start killing people. You know, that's one thing I've never really understood about people when they uh, purchase a house or they get into a house. You know, ask about the history. That is so important. I think it's so, you know, poignant. And um, it's, uh, you don't know what kind of area you're getting yourself into. You don't know what's happened there before. You don't know who's been there, what kind of energy. So there's a lot of questions when you, you know, you're going to be setting up your family and your household uh, in, a, in, a, in a place like that. And I, you know, definitely urge everyone, uh, if they're looking at a place to stay, even if it is an apartment, if you're renting, you know, do some research, you know, try to find out. Uh, you know, public records is out there for a reason. And a lot of that stuff is out there. And by law, if you ask these realtors about, you know, anything like that, they have to tell you. And um, so, you know, make sure you guys do your research. And before you get into a house and invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then all of a sudden that, you know, you're in a place where you're uncomfortable and it's not home. So don't let yourself fall into that trap. And um, this whole Ted Bundy thing, it wraps into our entertainment section as well. And um, we'll be getting into that here in a minute. Again, we'll be posting all these links to all these stories on our website at darkfringeradio.wordpress.com. Also on our Twitter at darkfringeradio. And uh, we'll be uh, sharing all that information with you guys. Any feedback from you guys would be great. We're going to be getting into our next story um, that I'm going to be dedicating some time to, which is Andrew Bushago, the lawyer who basically claimed that he worked for DARPA and the CIA. I'm doing time travel, and uh, we'll be getting into all that. It's a very interesting story. 
And uh, we'll be getting to all that here in a bit. Anyways, uh, thanks again for joining us here tonight at Dark Fringe Radio. Uh, first topic here for tonight is going to be DARPA and Project Pegasus, uh, and uh, getting into this here in a second. And, and just to give you a little bit of a background on Project Pegasus, uh, Project Pegasus was a classified defense-related research and developmental program under DARPA uh, in which the U.S. defense technical community achieved time travel on behalf of the U.S. government, uh, basically the real Philadelphia experiment. And uh, Project Pegasus was launched by the U.S. government to perform uh, remote sensing in time so that reliable information about past and future events could be provided to the U.S. president and intelligence community and military as well. Uh, so uh, it was expected that around 140 American school children were secretly involved in Project Pegasus uh, that would continue to be involved in time travel as they grew up and went on to serve as America's first uh, generation of chrononauts. Um, Project Pegasus is a quest begun in 1968 uh, by Andrew Bishago, as, as I mentioned earlier, and he was serving as a child participant in the U.S. time-space exploration program, uh, as, as mentioned. And uh, today, Andy uh, serves as a team leader of the new Project Pegasus, uh, the only group in the world that is lobbying the U.S. government to declassify its time travel secrets. And um, under Andy's leadership, uh, the mission of today's Project Pegasus is led to the campaign in law, politics, and culture uh, to urge the U.S. government to disclose its teleportation cap capability uh, so that this revolutionary technology can be used to the advantage of humanity in the 21st century. Here's a clip now of Andrew Bishago at the Free, uh, Free Your Mind Conference of 2013. I've been waging a truth campaign really with two components. Um, the first has been uh, my attempt to articulate my experiences of Darkness Project Pegasus as a child in the early 1970s so that the people of this country and the world know the truth of the, of the matter, which is that the U.S. government secretly achieved numerous forms of time travel um, by 1970, I was one of the children that was brought into those activities for a number of reasons. And I presented that story uh, when I last had the pleasure here of appearing at the Free Your Mind Conference in April of 2011. The other major component of my truth campaign has been to establish not only the fact that Mars is an inhabited planet, but that our government, the United States government, has been sending U.S. chrononauts to the planet Mars since the late 1970s and has established a secret colony there. And that's established not only on the basis of my testimony, but now six others who have come forward and a few new names that I'm going to share with you today. Just to give you a little background information about Andrew Bashag, he was born in September 18, 1961 in Morristown, New Jersey. He was the youngest of five children and grew up in northern New Jersey and southern California. 
Andy was one of uh, the quote-unquote whiz kids who served from 1969 to 1972 in DARPA's time-space exploration program, Project Pegasus, and soon he would publish his long-awaited memoir of his childhood experiences in U.S. Uh, time and travel research at the time of his emergence. A past member of Mensa, the High IQ Society, Andy holds five academic degrees, including a Bachelor of Arts in History from UCLA and the Master of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge. Uh, while an undergraduate at UCLA, he became a journalist and a protege of editor Norman Cousins of the Saturday Review, who once compared Andy to Robert Hutchins and nominated him to be the editor of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Andy was inspired by a meeting with the futurist Buckminster Fuller in 1981 to pursue a career in environmental policy. After their meeting, Fuller wrote, Andrew Bashago's integrity augurs well for humanity's continuance in the universe. He also began his career writing articles about the urban environment uh, for Los Angeles newspapers, national periodicals, and the Cousteau Society of Journal Calypso Log. Andy studied environmental law at Northwestern School of Law of Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and then went on to design nature-friendly urban plans for cities in California and study environmental law with Professor Malcolm Grant at Cambridge. His papers about the theory and practice of urban sustainability have been published in international peer-reviewed journals in Australia, Britain, and the United States, cited widely and placed in the environmental policy collections of university libraries. Andy was admitted to the Washington State Bar Association in 1966. A lawyer with a private practice, he specializes in personal injury law while representing and collaborating with writers and filmmakers and development of books, TV shows, and feature films with planetary and interplanetary themes. Now, going back to the coronavirus, um, Andy Bishango um, had a six-hour interview, and in this fascinating interview, he narrates uh, the hidden history of the discovery of life on Mars in 2008 and reveals that the fact that by 1968, the U.S. intelligence community was already aware of the aspect of his later Mars work. But I thought that I would uh, just establish the fact that Mars is an inhabited planet, and we now have not just substantial evidence of that, but I think evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I just thought I'd march through and sort of summarize what we found. Um, I continue to receive data from a growing cadre of research associates around the world now. Uh, there are a number, uh, for example, of photographs of humanoids that have been derived from NASA's photographs and the photographs of the European Space Agency that we haven't even published yet. Just this last week, we found an image of a Martian carving a rock with a handsaw. Okay, so we're not only, we've not only made the linkage between the humanoids that live primarily underground on Mars and, this, and the overwhelming uh, artwork that we see that litters the entire surface of the red planet, but we have now identified that the humanoids on Mars are in fact the makers of the carved statuary, which is so ubiquitous on the red planet. Uh, Anthony relates his experience in DARPA's Project Pegasus during the period of 1969 to 1972 and describes probes to past and future events that he took via teleportation and chronovision during the early days of time-space exploration by the U.S. government. Uh, he also confirms that the U.S. Uh, has been teleporting individuals to Mars for decades and recounts the awe-inspiring and terrifying trips that he took to Mars in 1981 after he was tapped to go there because he had teleported as a child participant in Project Pegasus. Officially speaking, it was from 1969 to 72 that I served in DARPA's Project Pegasus, although the first time I teleported on behalf of the U.S. government was uh, during the 1967-68 time frame, um, and we know that, that that dating is reliable because 
when we teleported to Santa Fe, my father and I, and then drove uh, over to meet with Dr. Harold M. Agnew when he was then director of the W Division, the weapons division, uh, at the Los Alamos National Labs. There was a discussion uh, between my dad and Dr. Agnew, and um, uh, Dr. Agnew looked over at me and said, how old? And my dad and I answered simultaneously, six. So we know that that meeting with Agnew took place between September of 1967 and September of 1968. I was born in September of 61. And that's also a means that we can use historically to establish that physical teleportation via vortal tunnels propagated by Tesla energetic arrays was already a technical proficiency that had been accomplished by the U.S. Department of Defense by the 1967-68 time frame. Um, officially, I was placed in Pegasus in the fall of 1969 as a third grader and involved primarily in teleporting back and forth between New Jersey and New Mexico and some future locations because, of course, to teleport back, you need, you need team members in the future to send you back to the present. Uh, and also, I described maybe a little bit less on Wednesday the different probes of the future that we and the past that we took in a, a virtual form of time travel via the chronovisor. So those were the major emphasis of Project Pegasus. Um, I think it was as a result of those experiences that in 1981, I was essentially requested, almost urged, by Courtney M. Hunt, who was the CIA agent they placed in my life in the early 80s. You know, throughout June of 81, he was asking me, do you want to go to Mars? And I, I said, quite frankly, no. You know, I didn't really want to leave Mother Earth. Uh, and he said, well, you have to. And I said, why? And he said, because the survival of the human race on Earth depends on it. And I really don't know what he meant by that. He either he was just speaking of the general proposition that we're going to have to be courageous enough to leave our home planet as astronauts or chrononauts in order to secure our home planet here. Or maybe there was some more elaborate uh, stratagem involved that centered on myself. I just simply don't know. He basically told me, well, you know, get ready because you're going. You, don't, you can't really uh, talk us out of it. Uh, and so those two teleportings that took place in July and August of 1981 when I was 19 and uh, going to UCLA here in Los Angeles were undertaken by um, jump room. They were at a, essentially a CIA facility in El Segundo. We went up via elevator up to the fifth floor, checked in at a kind of a desk there, a counter, a kind of like a Fijian suite that you'd have in a law firm. My name was provided to the one person who was working there. Uh, and then uh, Courtney said, well, Andy, why don't you step in the teleporter? And I said, where is it? You know, I was familiar with the essentially the elliptical-shaped uh, teleporters that had existed at Curtis Wright when I was a child. And he said, we just, came up to the, we just came up here in it. It's the elevator. And so I, I, I walked back in the elevator. The elevator went up to about the eighth floor. And Courtney said a couple times on the intercom, are you ready? And I kept on saying yes. And I was getting ex exasperated with him. And I finally said, light this candle. And uh, then the, essentially I felt a great deal of pressure. The elevator began to morph into more of a cylindrical shape. And those journeys took about 20 minutes uh, to reach Mars. As a kid, it w we were just jumping in seconds uh, back and forth between uh, New suburban New Jersey and Santa Fe, New Mexico. This is a little bit anachronistic at this point, but I just wanted to point out that my discovery of life on Mars has been the target of a disinformation campaign, essentially defaming me and distorting my evidence. Let me just cite one example. They had Ray Villard, who's the news director for the Hubble Space Telescope. I mean, he's a NASA employee, um, allege in a 3,000-word hit piece 
on the Discovery Channel website, which is supposed to embody the highest level of science writing in the world. Uh, quote, unquote, if Bashago has found evidence of little leprechauns on Mars, why doesn't he show any of them in his writings? Well, that's what my writings have been about. Um, so this presentation is about six months old. I was still sort of wrapped up in the fact that they were spending your tax dollars to, to, to fame me, an independent whistleblower and attorney at law. Um, and I think I've advanced the cause of science by deriving this data from NASA and the ESA's own photographs. Your tax dollars are being spent essentially uh, to defame an independent researcher who has found evidence in NASA's own photographs that Mars is an inhabited planet. Um, now, why is this going on? Well, the cover-up uh, of life on Mars is obviously linked to the quantum cover-up because we've been, we've been going there via teleportation since at least 1981. I mean, we may have been going earlier. I was involved in 1981. So when as brilliant a researcher as David Wilcox states that um, there are now 600,000 U.S. personnel up on the red planet, I can't discount that because they, when they sent me up 28 years ago, there were already human beings up there. I mean, on the first teleportation by myself, I was greeted by three young adults who were CIA personnel. They were human beings from our civilization that were already up there. Um, the second time when I went up with, with Courtney Hunt, there was a man that we talked to in a building that was about a half a mile uh, from the skull that I walked out through the eye socket of from the underground location. And he was also a CIA you know, agent, you know, personnel of our civilization here on Earth. And so I think they're very phobic about even discussing the fact that Mars has an indigenous <coughs> ecology and civilization because they don't even want us to think about the fact that there are living humanoids on Mars, both from our own civilization and from the primarily underground civilization that exists on the Red Planet. Several days after I published my paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, in 2008, actually it was four days later, I was contacted by a career CIA officer. In fact, she's the niece of the man who introduced Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger as friends, a woman by the name of Virginia Olds. And Virginia passed along information from the CIA that the CIA estimates that there are about a million humanoids living in the primarily underground civilization on Mars. So I can't confirm uh, David Wilcox's estimate that it's 600,000 U.S. personnel on Mars, but it certainly is what you would presume would be numerous at this point, 30 years after uh, I was set up, uh, set up there as a 19-year-old. When asked if the evidence that he's found establishes an existence of a previous civilization on Mars, his answer was this. Yes, Mars was inhabited by antiquity and is inhabited today. The civilization on Mars was impacted by the solar system catastrophe of 9,500 B.C., which debris elements from the Vela supernova explosion entered our solar system, devastating Mars and destroying the great maritime civilization on Earth that built the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx. The evidence of Mars of this ancient civilization consists of very large monuments that can be seen from satellite images and now smaller details photographed by NASA's rover Spirit and Opportunity, such as the image of the Egyptian pharaoh that Mars has identified on a rock on Mars that was photographed by Spirit that we are calling the Rosetta Stone of Mars because it establishes the connection between ancient Egypt and Mars. After this catastrophe, the human beings on Mars took refuge underground where their post-catastrophe civilization has survived intact and where, according to a senior CIA officer who contacted me after I published the discovery of life on Mars in 2008, one million Martian humanoids of several different types now live. When asked if the probability of all these forms of evidence were optical illusions, his reply was this. 
None. I'm a lawyer in Washington State, and I can say with some authority that the evidence that Mars has already published on the web is sufficient to convince any jury in the United States that that Mars is an inhabited planet. However, we are not in that place in the debate yet. We're at the place in the debate whether President Obama will honor his own call for change and change the traditional policy of the U.S. government established by the CIA's Robertson Panel of 1952 to 1953, which has been to deny the existence of extraterrestrial life. You may remember that during the presidential campaign in 2008, President Obama was asked about extraterrestrial life, and he joked that the critical question was whether or not ETs were Democrats or Republicans. I met Barack Obama in 1982 when we were college students, and I think that he's a smarter person than that. I think that he recognized the great contribution that could be made as president were he to embrace my call to acknowledge that Mars is inhabited, establish a Mars protectorate under the UN, and normalize relations with the human civilization on Mars. Ultimately, I think he has no other choice now that the evidence that Mars is inhabited so far surpasses the possibility that it's an optical illusion that it falls somewhere between the substantial evidence standard and beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Clearly, there's still some skepticism, but in my view, such skepticism results from fear of change rather than the courage to confront the truth. When finally asked, if the artifacts truly exist, what lessons should be learned by humanity about your discovery of life on Mars? His reply was this. The overarching philosophical lesson to be learned from this is the discovery is that we live in an inhabited universe, that human life as we know it on Earth may be more commonplace in the cosmos than we once thought. The 21st century will see something that human civilization on Earth has never seen for 500 years, the discovery of a new world. The immediate lesson to be learned, however, is the reason that I am leading the campaign to achieve political recognition that Mars is an inhabited planet, is that we must begin the great debate on Earth to enact the international treaty that is now required to protect the ecology and the civilization of Mars from visitation, exploration, habitation, and colonization by human beings from Earth. We must remember that Mars does not belong to people of America or Russia or indeed the people of Earth. Mars belongs to the Martians. If we fail to recognize this, then we failed our first major test of cosmic citizenship. I think that the people of Earth are ready for cosmic citizenship, and I think that they are ready for the truth. When asked about the Chronovisor, he stated that this could be used to create an international network of virtual museums in which images from the past would be shown to enlighten and educate the public. Misapplied, such technology could also be used to create a fascist society based on 24-hour surveillance surveillance of individuals by government, which have may have been protended by the DARPA project called Total Information Awareness that President George W. Bush established and placed under Admiral John Poindexter. Teleportation is a second quantum access technology developed with public funds that the public is being denied the full benefits of. Teleportation could be used, Bashago said, to move people and goods more quickly and efficiently around the globe without the pollution caused by planes, trains, and automobiles, or the negative land use effects from airports, railroad tracks, and highways. Yet, if not declassified, teleportation will remain what it has been for 40 years, that is, a weapon only used by the U.S. military to have the option to put troops precisely where they're needed on battlefields.
I take my responsibilities as a planetary whistleblower seriously, Pashago said. This is a truth campaign for positive human development on this planet. The people of this planet have the right to a truth telling of the natural history of the solar system that we inhabit. This includes the truth that Mars is an inhabited planet and also that the United States secret space program has already sent individuals from this planet to the red planet. And if we are to achieve a sustainable human future on this planet, we must demand that the U.S. government reveal the teleportation that has been used to reach Mars so that it can now be used to revolutionize human transport on Earth. The people of this planet have the right to inhabit a future global society in which all human beings enjoy the life-advantaging benefits of all the technologies that all human ingenuity have ever produced. In both these cases, whether a treaty protecting Mars or a global network of teleports results, the truth shall set us free. As a result of his courageous advocacy as a crusading lawyer, uh, Andy is credited with ending the time travel and Mars cover-ups by the U.S. government on behalf of the American people. This arduous work of the Vineyards of the Truth movement represented historic breakthroughs in the America's understanding of the, our past and the prospects of our future. Today, Andrew Bishago is running for president of the United States with a new agenda for a new America. He has vowed that if elected president, he would lead the American people into a bold new era of truth, reform, and innovation. What a fantastic story. I mean, just think about the true nature of about uh, the concept of teleportation. I mean, just to think that you're able to take yourself and put yourself wherever you want at a moment's notice anywhere in the world. I mean, that's just a, a fantastical idea. I mean, we see this stuff on TV and movies and we say, oh, yeah, that's great. But just to think about it being applied to everyday, you know, life and here in the world. I mean, that's just a, like, again, I said, it's just an unbelievable thought. So, again, we'll be posting all that uh, information, all those links on our website at darkfringeradio.wordpress.com. And you can also uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, that's our most active uh, social media at Dark Fringe Radio. And um We'll be wrapping things up here in a second, but first, it's going to be some entertainment news um, and then the outro, so stick around. Introducing Hasbro's Ouija. Is that the one where you talk to ghosts? It's actually pretty fun. Is there a spirit here? Oh, my God. There are only three simple rules. Never play alone. Spirit, can you hear me? Never play in a graveyard. We played in a graveyard. And always say goodbye. Night, Romeo. With Ouija, you'll make new friends. Hi, friend. Connect with the other soul. Experience unknown. And with a little practice. Look, Mom, no hands. You'll be an expert in no time. It's fun for the whole family. <laughs> When's the best time to play Ouija? Always. <laughs> That tickled. Hasbro's Ouija. There's over. Ouija and germs. It's showtime! Welcome back, everybody, to the entertainment news section of the podcast. Earlier, I was telling you that there was a tie-in with Ted Bundy. And um, what's going on is this. Zac Efron is going to star in a serial killer movie biopic of Ted Bundy. Uh, basically, he's come on board uh, to play him. 
and the uh, new independent drama called Extremely Wicked. And um, Vulture's Pictures and Michael Costigan's Coda Films are producing uh, with Joel Berlinger's directing. Uh, Michael Worvey uh, wrote the original screenplay, uh, which run the, won the Nickel Fellowship First Prize and was on the blacklist. Uh, the film is set to commence principal photography on October 9th. Uh, Voltage will fully finance and is handling international sales at the Cannes Film Festival. CAA and UTA Independent Film Group represent the domestic rights. Efron that was seen in the latest Paramount flop Baywatch opposite Dwayne Johnson. Uh, he's also going to be starring in Fox's The Great Showman with Hugh Jackman and Michelle Williams directed by Michael Gracie. Extremely wicked producers are Nicholas Cartier and Ara Keshishin uh, for Voltage alongside Costigan for Coda Films. I've been trying to work with Zac Efron for a long time, Cartier said, from the, his dramatic turn in Paperboy uh, to his hilarious performance in Neighbors. He continues to impress audiences and critics alike with his extraordinary versatility and range. Uh, we couldn't be more excited to see him in this amazing role. Uh, the project was unveiled in 2014 at the Cannes Film Festival. The project follows this dysfunctional relationship between Bundy and his longtime girlfriend, Liz. Bundy, a killer and rapist of young girls and women who was notoriously charming, was executed in Florida in 1989. And I think it was a good uh, casting for this particular role because, you know, Ted Bundy was known as a very good looking man. And um, that was part of the reason why he was able to gain the confidence of a lot of these young women that he uh, ultimately raped and murdered. So, so yeah, um, I'm looking forward to that actual um, biopic that looks like it's going to be a good casting on that. So definitely be looking out for it in the next year or two. Well, if you guys haven't heard already, um, uh, Lincoln Park's Chester Beddington committed suicide um, this past Thursday, and um, it was pretty um, horrifying that, you know, everybody found that out. Um, and this was shortly, you know, and as I spoke about this earlier, about Chris Cornell and how important he was um, to uh, the grunge rock scene uh, and, and to rock and roll, you know, altogether. He was uh, suicided by hanging and he was 41 years old. Uh, law enforcement sources told the site that the singer hung himself at his private residence in Palo Verde's estates in L.A. County. Uh, his body was discovered Thursday, uh, just before 9 a.m. Uh, Chester was married with six children from two wives. The singer struggled with drugs and alcohol for years, according to TMZ. Uh, he said in the past he had considered committing suicide because he had been abused as a child by an older male. Uh, this news is particularly uh, particularly upsetting as Chester was very close with Chris Cornell, who himself committed suicide by hanging in May. Chester wrote an open letter to Chris on the day of Chris's suicide. While Bennington was known as the frontman of Lincoln Park, he also appeared in Lion Gate's Saw 3D. His uh, hit debut record uh, album Hybrid Theory in 2000, which was an album that was part of the, you know, what shaped, you know, me particularly and millions of others. Uh, and he will sorely be missed. And we, uh, I sent out my prayers and blessings to uh, him and his family. Um, I wanted to um, bring up this information. Um, if you know someone who is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at uh, 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Five five. So, uh, very sad uh, passing of Mr. Chester Bennington. Another very sad passing in the horror world. George A. Romero passed away at the age of seventy-seven this past week. Uh, the great J. George A. Romero, regarded by us horror fans as the Godfather of the Dead, has passed away Sunday after a brief but aggressive battle with lung cancer. 
Romero, who was 77 years old, died in his sleep while listening to the score of his one of his favorite films, 1952's The Quiet Man, with his wife Suzanne and his daughter Tina at his side as the family uh, waited for his passing. Romero created the zombie genre as the co-writer with John A. Russo and director of the 1968 movie Night of the Living Dead, which went to show future generations of filmmakers such as Tobe Hooper and John Carpenter uh, that generating big scares didn't require big budgets. Living Dead spawned an entire school of zombie kickoffs and Romero sequels included in 1978's Dawn of the Dead, 1985's Day of the Dead, 1990's Land of the Dead, 2007's Diary of the Dead, and 2009's Survival of the Dead. Uh, he had been developing the next installment in the Dead series, which was to be titled Road of the Dead and directed by Matt Bergman. Romero also directed my absolute favorite vampire movie, the 1978's Martin, as well as the 1973's The Crazies, 1981's Night Riders, 1982's Creep Show, 1988's Monkey Shines, 1990's Two Evil Eyes, and 1993's Dark Half. Romero was a titan in the horror genre and left a void that will never be filled. He is immortal to us all and will never forget what he did for the genre. We send our thoughts again and our prayers to him and his family and friends. While uh, we as a horror community will mourn the death until the very end of time. So very, very sad. Uh, George Romero loved the um, this genre that he created. Um, I remember the first time I watched Night of the Living Dead, and there was two particular scenes that always stood out to me. It was the beginning scene um, with uh, the couple and uh, the very, very, very famous Barbara, they're coming for you um, line. And then also the end, <laughs> uh, which was kind of a um, spoiler if you haven't heard this or seen this movie before. Um, the main um, protagonist uh, in the movie uh, ends up getting shot and killed at the end. Uh, after surviving a night of horror by just lawmen who thinking that he was actually a zombie himself, but he actually survived. So very uh, messed up twist of fate at the end of that movie. But um, those are the two parts of that movie that I always will remember. And um, again, we'll be uh, missing Mr. Romero um, as he's passed on. All right, enough of that depressing stuff. Now we're going to jump into the dark web. Um, I've always been interested about the dark web. I never, you know, I never tried to get on there. I've always wanted to, but uh, never had the balls to do it. But uh, today in the headlines, or this week in the past in the headlines, it looks like Alpha Bay and Hansa were two websites from the dark web that were taken down this week, which actually were the two biggest ones. Uh, this week, police announced that the takedown of the two of the dark web's largest marketplaces for illegal goods, Alpha Bay and its substitute Hansa, uh, through a combination of online and conventional detective works, detective work, I should say. Federal agents shut down these two hubs of criminal trade and arrested the major players involved. It's a substantial blow to the dark web's community of consumers who had taken to Alpha Bay and then Hansa after Silk Road 2 went under. Still, this kind of website can be extremely persistent and authorities find uh, themselves playing a whack-a-mole game uh, with various sites. Among dark web experts, there's a general consensus that there will only be more dark web marketplaces and subsequent takedowns to come. Despite the sophistication of anonymity, tools like Tor and Bitcoin, law enforcement's best clues in this case have seemed to have been in the result of criminal ineptitude. In December of 2006, police discovered Alexander Cassez, Alpha Bay's apparent creator, through his Hotmail email address, which was used to send out password recovery e emails for Alpha Bay. 
That email address was found on a French tech troubleshooting website with Cassez full name. That led to investigators to Cassez and LinkedIn account, which he listed awfully familiar skills like web hosting, cryptography, making his uh, prominence a suspect in the case only continued to grow. Despite all the skills Cassez claimed to have on LinkedIn, his drug front company website, exptech.com was barely functional. According to court documents and EBX company bank records showed little to no income. As a final nail in the coffin, authorities uh, acquired Kazes PayPal records, which listed pimp underscore Alex underscore 91 at hotmail.com as the contact information, uh, directly tying Kazes uh, payment information back to the incriminated uh, addresses. This put uh, forth a swift end to Kazes almost three-year-old eBay-style illegal goods site. Criminals and undercover cops alike hide under the anonymity offered by Tor and other safe practices when using Bitcoin to buy and sell illegal goods, which makes the dark web a nebulous playing field for digital crime where neither side can catch the other. Instead of attempting to strong arm their way through this technology, authorities catch crooks through slip-ups like email addresses mistakenly dropped outside the secure Tor browser and a suspiciously detailed resume linking uh, cryptography and server admin skills. It is never really the technology, for example, Tor, that lets these operators down, says the dark web researcher Sarah Jamie Lewis. It's the practices that go around to such as emails, payments, shipping that tends to be the undoing. Running such a service is hard, says Nicholas Christian, an associate research professor at Carnegie Mellon University who specializes in cybersecurity. A single slip up like this can have a domino effect. And the problem is that while you get reasonable protection at the network level from Tor, for everything else, you're on your own. What Kazes should have done, according to the GOOG, an anonymous information security researcher, is create an anonymous John Doe persona complete with a fake email address, phone number, home address, and life history. That way, when he makes mistakes, which he will, he exposes John Doe. This non-existent nobody, says the GOOG, People tend to make mistakes and rather than start over from scratch, they think, eh, what are the odds that one will make uh, that one mistake will be found? It's probably fine. And of course, it's never fine. If mistakes ran so rampant in the Alpha Bay operation, how did Kazes keep running from September 2014 to early July, enabling as much as one billion in transactions? It took two whole years of operation before authorities found his poorly hidden email address combing through his old forms and hidden links. As hacking and criminal marketplaces abound, officials are still struggling to adjust their methods accordingly. Law enforcement is really playing a game of catch-up and has been for a long time, which is one of the things I've seen when I was a federal prosecutor, says Marcus Christian, a former prosecutor. Some defend the dark web markets as a way to make the drug trade less violent. In 2015, TED Talk tech blogger Jamie Bartlett made the argument that sites like Alpha Bay are at least a peer-reviewed way to buy drugs, malware, and other paraphernalia. That TED Talk pointed to several advanced features of Alpha Bay that perhaps will affect the future of dark web and the internet in a positive way. Alpha Bay gave people a way to peer-reviewed drugs and discredit sellers that didn't deliver on time, didn't deliver the products they promised, and otherwise left customers dissatisfied. Kazez had his website lambasted by officials for providing the means for teenagers to overdose on drugs, but this site may have actually been offered a safer buying option. 
The Groog wrote on Medium, Great job ridding the world of a nonviolent drug distribution channel that virtually eliminated risk and significantly reduced harm to addicts. Well, you know what? Uh, I've never gone on the dark web, like I said before, and um, I guess something good can come out of it. So I think I'm going to just stay away from that. But um, looks like um, they're tracking these people down one by one. So if I were you, I'd probably stay very, very far away from that as possible. All right, guys, uh, it's time to uh, Netflix and chill. <laughs> Funny thing about that. I didn't know what that meant until about maybe like three or four weeks after it came out, that phrase. I never knew what it meant. And then all of a sudden, somebody told me that was younger to me. That was code for let's have sex. But anyways, Netflix is Stranger Things 2. Season 2. Trailer goes on. It's finally here, guys. Stranger Things 2 is coming out in October. Uh, Netflix just released a full trailer for it, and um, it comes out October 27th. The trailer's shown uh, to a packed San Diego Comic-Con crowd goes from nostalgia to nightmare in an instant. Finn Wolford uh, recently uh, teased that season two will be darker and more horror-oriented than the first one. And damn, he wasn't kidding. An enormous and terrifying new-looking monster is arriving in the town of Hawkins uh, this coming season, which is set just about one year after the events of season one. Uh, The trailer plays to Michael Jackson's thriller with the great Vincent Price narrating. The Halloween theme Give so much vibrancy and life to the footage that's already jam-packed with nods to our childhood. The biggest tease, however, is that the Demogorgon allegedly has a motive. Oh, and Eleven? Well, she's back. So I'm really happy about that. Confirmed for the second season are Paul Reiser, Brett Gelman, uh, Linnea uh, Berthelsen, Darcy Montgomery, Will Chase, Rob Morgan, and Sadie Sink. Uh, they joined the returning uh, Finn Wolfhard, Millie Bobby Brown, uh, Gaden M- Matarazzo, Caleb McLaughlin, Nia Dyer, and Charlie Heaton. So uh, excited about that. Everybody enjoyed that in my family, that particular show. And uh, we're looking forward to season two, uh, as I'm sure all of you guys are. And um, kind of looking forward to see how far they bring this. I'm really curious. So keep you posted. All right, everybody. As I promised, I would give you guys a movie review. And um, tonight's movie is going to be Get Out. Um, directed by Jordan Peele, uh, great movie, really good movie. Um, very smart the way it was, you know, directed. Um, I love the um, race satire that was going on there. It's a movie about uh, this young African American man who is dating a white woman and um, young couple, and they basically are culminating their relationship to a point where. You know, it's a normal progression where a man starts to, you know, goes to meet, you know, the girl's parents. And so uh, they drive out to some house out in the woods and um, and um, he starts to see and uh, realize that there's little things that are happening that just don't seem right. Um, things just don't add up. Uh, things seem to be really off. So he starts to pick up all these things, but it's a great movie. It's a lot of suspense, a lot of thrillers, um, a lot of jump scare type pop-up scenes and uh, that I think uh, a lot of people do enjoy, but it's also very smart. Uh, and what I mean by this is just that it just makes sense. There's nothing that um, there's no movement that's wasted. You know, like in a lot of horror movies where people just do things, it just doesn't make sense. It just, you know, makes sense for the plot, but doesn't make sense in real life. This movie actually does make sense. So um, check it out. Uh, anytime that um, you have some extra time, uh, check out Jordan Peele's Get Out. And it stars uh, Daniel Kalua and also Allison Williams. Uh, she plays the girlfriend. Daniel plays the boyfriend. Uh, great casting, by the way. Everybody did really well. Um, the mother of the girl 
Catherine Keener, she's been around a lot of films, and I've recognized her um, in a bunch of other uh, films as well, I think with Judd Apatow that he's done. Um, but a very, very good film. If you ever get a chance to um, check it out, you definitely will not be disappointed. So, again, watch uh, Get Out by Jordan Peele. It was uh, released uh, February this past year, uh, but I am reviewing it for you now. So um, here's the outro, guys. Um, thanks for joining in on our very first episode here at Dark Fringe Radio. I want to urge and thank everybody for uh, tuning in and uh, push you to uh, – Go to our social media. Check us out there as well. Uh, give us feedback on the show. Anything that you want to hear um, on the show. Next week, I will be having an uh, interview with Kerwin uh, Rodriguez. He's actually um, runs a site called Holistic Mystics. And we're going to be talking about uh, magic, alchemy, and the awakening. And um, some really cool stuff. A very intelligent guy. Uh, we had a very good conversation. Lasted about 45 minutes. And um, it was so good that I told him that we'd have to have him on again. So, again, follow us on our um, social media at Dark Fringe Radio on uh, Twitter uh, and our, also our website, darkfringeradio.wordpress.com. Again, I'm Will Martinez here for you at Dark Fringe Radio, your host, and I will see you next week. Thanks again. Love you. <laughs>